We are looking forward to hearing more about Dr. Mike Roizen's brand new book, The Great Age Reboot, at the Foundations of Wellness this year at the Gasparilla Inn. It's amazing how many advances are being made today. It's actually inspiring. We're also going to learn about the Enneagram personality test and how it can boost your empathy and confidence. It was so interesting to figure out the personalities of the people in my family and how we all fit together. So to register, you can head on over to our website at bbrconsulting.us for more information. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Kristen Allen is dedicated to optimizing brains and bodies for better decision-making, creative problem-solving, and just sound mental health. She's the co-author of Fuel Your Brain, Not Your Anxiety. And Trisha and I are thrilled that Dr. Kristen Allett is joining us today on Health Gig. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here and have a conversation with you. Well, we're more excited and we want you to start by telling us a little bit about you. Then let's move into what you're most excited about these days. I'm a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist in the state of Washington. And for those of you who don't know what a naturopathic physician is in the state of Washington and many states throughout the nation, we're licensed as primary care providers, but we're trained differently than MDs. I did an anatomy class, I did physiology, I did biochemistry, I did pharmacology. I also studied herbs and nutrition and lifestyle and how it impacts health. We really are interested in treating cause versus just covering or ameliorating symptoms. So that's my training. But when I graduated, what I was really interested in, because I had worked with kids in psychiatric crisis, is what's the physiology and biochemistry of mental health? And, uh, and so that, that was kind of the burning question. And I just opened a practice and, and talked to a hundred mental health professionals and they started sending me people who were on lots of psychotropic meds and lot had done lots of therapy and it wasn't working. And, and we just worked together to figure it out. And so the practice that I described that I have in Washington is non-pharmaceutical interventions for mental health. And I've been in practice for about 20 years. And then about six years ago, I got together with a good friend of mine, uh, Natasha Duarte, and we published a book, Fuel Your Brain, Not Your Anxiety. I kind of felt like this was the missing piece in mental health. Like I was always like, you got to eat more frequently. You got to sleep. You got to move your body. And here's why. The thing that I'm really excited about talking about today and is kind of my new push is continuous glucose monitoring for mental health. It's amazing what you do. You're right. Nobody is talking about management of sugar and mental health. I mean, we're hearing things about it matters what you eat. People are getting the fact that it does affect your mood, but no one's going as deep as you are, at least what we've seen and saying, okay, let's just break this down and let's monitor the glucose. So can you talk to us about that? And and I know Fuel your brain, not your anxiety. Stop the cycle of worry, fatigue, and sugar cravings with simple protein-rich foods. So begin. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Heal us, heal us. I'm going to back up to how I got on that track. When I was working with kids in psychiatric crisis, there was this kid, and I'm going to call him John, and he was about a 
160 pounds and 5'10 and kind of 17 year old boy who tended to hit people when he didn't get his way. And he came from a pretty violent family. So that was an emotional coping skill that he had learned. Nobody had really told him otherwise, you know, like there's things going on. And he came in and we had a behavioral program and he got a hundred points on the behavioral program in the first day which nobody did. Like he did everything we asked, which is really hard for 17 year old boys to do. And he was fully engaged. And if you got above a 95, you got a reward. You could have a walk around the block or you could have a Snickers bar. I don't remember all of them, but he chose a Snickers bar. And two hours later, he was trying to kill us. And we did that pattern four nights in a row, 100% execution of the staff. And we alternated who was in charge. And the fifth day, I was like, we're going to do something different because I was the only biology major there. I had no psychology in my background. <laughs> so, like, backing up, they had shared with me the DSM, which is the medical manual for mental health. And they're like, here, read this. And I was like, there's no physiology or biochemistry in here. So I'm watching this pattern with John and I was like, I'm going to go to the store and I got those little army dudes. And I was like, do you want army dudes? Do you want a violent toy? (laughs) (laughs) And we had no problem. Fascinating. And we did that three nights in a row. And then he did a Snickers bar. He was like, I'm not eating Snickers bars. I like getting my way, but I don't like hitting people. Yeah. When I started my practice, people would come in. And I thought I was going to be giving like 5-HTP and St. John's Ward and all these things I've been trained with, right? But when somebody comes in on four or five psychotropic meds, you're not going to give them 5-HTP. That's like pouring a cup of water into Puget Sound. (laughs) 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 And it might be dangerous, actually. And what I observed is they weren't eating. And so I was like, why don't we have breakfast and see if you stop having panic attacks at 11 o'clock? And they did. I was like, let's try lunch. There's a range of mental health out there. Five psychotropic meds, we can call that's probably on the more severe end. But I've done this with executives. I've done this with people who aren't on meds. If they eat protein every three hours, their blood glucose and other things, carbohydrates and vegetables and stuff like that, but really tracking the protein, it stabilizes their blood glucose throughout the day. And what we know is if you go too long without eating, Your body says, oh, I need to make glucose for the brain. When those hormones get going, saying, oh, I need glucose, adrenaline is one of the hormones that's released. Some people can go all day without eating and they can manage the adrenaline. They can get this really smart prefrontal cortex to sit on their lizard brain and not panic or get angry. But when we have a history of trauma, when we have a history of stress event after stress event after stress event, when we work in a toxic work environment, when we've gone through a pandemic and everything we know and understood got changed for two years, or we're moving towards diabetes. And by the way, every adult is moving towards diabetes in America. It can't sit down on that lizard brain, that survival brain. That's like, we have three options to survive here. We're either going to kill it, which is John's main muscle. We're going to run from it, which means we're going to have anxiety, or we're going to stick our head in the sand and try and lower our emotional tolerance, which is Facebook, Instagram, gaming, alcohol, marijuana. I had a number of days in the last two years where I was like, yeah, I'm done. 
<laughs> you know? yeah. like ben and jerry's ice cream and me are really <laughs> buddies right now the entire pipes because this is a lot right yeah and so what are the things that throw our glucose off it's a list let's start with not getting eight hours of sleep going to bed at the same time and getting up hugely important for glucose regulation you're really big on the circadian rhythm i'm huge on the circadian rhythm can you tell us a little bit about that? If you think about what we did historically, the sun would get up, we would go find food, we would go find the resources that we needed, we would connect community and family, we would take care of things, sun goes down, we go to sleep. And particularly in lower latitudes, like there's 12 hours of darkness. We had 12 hours of resting because you don't wanna be wandering around in the dark. There are other animals that have more skills than you do to be out there, right? So you kind of huddled around the campfire, did repetitive hand motion with your community, making food and weapons and clothing and telling each other stories. That's our natural rhythm. There were patterns to food and probably we were too locked into the patterns because we also were really physically active low level moving our body all day long. So the first thing that sets our circadian rhythm is seeing sunlight within an hour of waking up. It doesn't take too much, like get up, go outside for 10 minutes, walk around the block and everybody's a little different, right. but your brain knows, okay, we just got up and we're gonna go to sleep and we're gonna try and get about eight hours of sleep. Part of why you want your food to be also in a predictable pattern is because your digestive system needs to get ready to receive food. Historically, mostly how we got food is we sat around a campfire and it cooked for a while and the smell and the sight, like we knew food was coming. And so that gets our digestive system going and it actually raises our insulin. Our whole body's like, food is coming. When I go to the East Coast, when I travel to the East Coast, I'll have breakfast at like seven o'clock. Whatever my noon is, my body's like, where's the food? Start working, yeah. Where's yeah. the food? Our body lives in those rhythms. And there's so much interesting research, like every cell has its own circadian rhythm. Like it's mm. because predictability helps the body conserve resources, right? Predictability, right. So the body doesn't have to stress out. It's like a baby, right? It's right, a baby. Yeah, like a schedule. A schedule really helps. And we're horrible at that, right? Yeah. I have people who are going to bed anywhere between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. And so your body's like, whoa, and that throws all these neurotransmitters off and that throws your hormonal system off. And just staying focused on your hormonal system. So the hormonal system is the messenger system of the body. It will learn your pattern if there is a pattern and be like, okay, now we're preparing for this. But if there's no pattern, yeah, it's always behind the gun and be like, oh my God, food showed up. Oh my God, stress showed up. And then that affects cortisol and that affects- Right, because you're like always like this then, right? Yeah. Well, I think what you're saying too is that it's a 24 hour period. So the day and the night really reflect each other. Is that sort of yeah. what you're saying? What you yeah. do in the daytime really affects your sleep. Absolutely. Sleep was horrible during COVID, right? Everybody's having these sleep issues. And as we go through my list, that will make sense. And that's part of why we're in a mental health crisis right now. It is really hard to get to see a therapist. And if you don't like your therapist, hang on to your therapist until you can get into another one or a prescriber because 
we have done a lot of things to dysregulate our body. And what I like about continuous glucose monitoring is that it's a biofeedback to see what we're doing. Because you have really low blood glucose and you're diagnosed with anxiety or ADHD, first clean the glucose problem up and then see if you still have those symptoms. So what happened is my book came out and I was busy with my book and somewhere writing the book, the continuous glucose monitors became accessible. And I was like, oh crap, that would have been nice to know before I published this book. (laughs) Because now I get to see if this theory that I had used on 20 years of people this is going to validate or not validate it. And fortunately for me, it validated. Yeah. Go back to the list. So I interrupted you. So there's the sleep. I'm going to give the list. And it's better to make imperfect movement than to try and do things perfectly. Hold this list and its priorities loosely together and do your best with what you can, right? So first, going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time. Eating at the same time. And really for mental health, and this is where people get confused on my messaging. There are a lot of diets out there and they all have their pros and they all have their cons. And people are like, what about intermittent fasting? What about veganism? This diet is if you need to prioritize better mental health, right? Once you get that stabilized, you can move on to other health priorities. But in my book, mental health comes first. Because when my mental health is not stable, I can't take care of myself and I can't take care of other physical health problems or other emotional problems happening in my family and my community. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. One of the things, and it's not for everybody, but it's for a chunk of people is really monitoring fatigue levels. If your energy, and we're going to do a positive energy scale. So if one, I'm not getting out of bed, I don't care if the house is burning down. 10, I have enough energy to do whatever happens in the day and I'm going to be tired at the end of the day. It's not manic. Bring it on. I'm good. When people get to a five, which is I can cover the basics, but that's it. If somebody's living at a five, they're setting themselves up for a mental health or a physical health crisis because their power supply, brain, which is hardware, mind, which is our creative, compassionate, curious self, and our relationship. And if all of those are working well, life is pretty good. But what fuels that is how we take care of our body. And how we take care of our body directly takes care of our brain. And what takes care of our brain allows us to manifest the creative and unique and authentic person that we want to be, which allows us to be in functional relationships. Some people started off life with pretty toxic functional relationships. And so they didn't learn to take care of their body. Sleep was dangerous. Food was unpredictable. They had to be in fight and flight all the time, making sure that whatever was happening, they were ahead of the curve. And that got hardwired into their brain. Is that permanent? Absolutely not. I've seen so many people walk out of really complex PTSD and live brilliant, happy lives. But what I don't see the conversation being in this country is we have therapy. So let's talk about what happened in childhood or workplace or whatever. That's important to get the story together. Absolutely. That is so important. And we have meds. It's just going to take care of your brain chemistry, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But nobody's really saying, like, let's help you learn the skills to take care of your body. And so the skills are go to bed at the same time. 
eat at the same time, know how to get nutritious, useful food, move your body. Part of the reason why sleep went sideways during COVID is like when we had to get up and walk to the car and sit in the car and then walk to work, at least there was some level of movement. And the problem with not moving your body is when you move your body, you get brain-derived neurotropic factor. Any kind of movement. If we just jumped up right now and did five chair squats, brain-derived neurotropic factor, we're going to remember this conversation better. We're going to help be able to rewire our brain more easily, and we're going to be able to learn more easily. And I don't know about you, but learning in this informational age is really important. And that happens because we move our body. So what's a good glucose level that we want to be at? So if you get a glucose monitor, it's not what glucose level, because that's complex. It depends on your age. It depends on how close you walk into diabetes. Like everybody has a baseline. What we don't want to be doing is spiking our blood glucose and dropping it really fast. What I know about severe mental illness is like the extreme end of things like suicidal ideation, cutting, drinking, really being like, I have to drink. That all happens when we've been away from food for a long time, or we did what John did, which was spike his blood glucose. I mean, Snickers has that ad about hangry, right? They're right. That's going to stop the hangry in the short term, and it's going to return an hour later because your blood glucose is going to go up and come back down really fast. And so it's this spiking that is really challenging to the brain and body. Because when we're eating real whole foods, like most we're going to spike our blood glucose when we're like, last night I had a continuous glucose monitor on right now because I'm doing some experiments and, and I had some gazpacho. And gazpacho is good for you. I'm not saying don't eat it, but because it's pre-digested food, it spiked my blood glucose. But that's a different response than if I had had a root beer float because the up and the down is not as severe. And so when I have seen my root beer floats, and I love root beer floats, I do not have a perfect diet, let's be really clear about that, but it goes higher and it comes down faster. And I'll tell you what, watching it go up, I'm like, oh my God, this is so much fun. I'm getting dopamine and I'm getting rewarded for eating the root beer float, right? And then on the other side, I'm like, God, my family is so annoying because... (laughs) And what was really happening is the blood glucose was dropping so quickly. And so if our blood glucose gets too low from whatever our baseline is, or we're on a ski slope, there's an emotional response to that. The metaphor that I tell people on ski slope is if you happen to look at your checking account and somebody had gotten hold of your debit card and your checking account was just being emptied out very quickly, like it's going to be gone by the end of the hour. Wouldn't you have an emotional response to that? And your brain does too. It's like, oh my God, my fuel is going away. And there must be an external cause to that. If I said to people, you can have whatever you want for breakfast, You can have your Captain Crunch, but I want you to have two eggs or some sausage or a protein shake. And then I want you three hours later to have a handful of nuts and then have lunch. And at lunch, if you're a meat eater, I want you to have a deck of cards of meat because that's about 20 grams of protein. And if you're a plant eater, I want you to figure out how to get 20 grams of protein. And that depends on what they're eating and is complex. And then three hours after lunch, I want you to have another handful of protein. 
Then at dinner, I want you to have a deck of cards or 20 grams of protein. Because although there's a story out there that Americans are eating too much protein, they are not the Americans coming into my office. Most of the people who are coming into my office are having carbs for breakfast, like cereal, even oatmeal. It's great for your gut biome. There's no protein in it, and it's just mostly carbs. And so oatmeal with maple syrup and butter and maybe some raisins, it's helping your cholesterol, yes, but I need help today <laughs> you know, managing my brain. And then I see a lot of women, but this can apply to men because there's this diet culture, like we're going to have a salad. And I'm like, so what's the protein on your salad? And they're like, garbanzo beans. You know, that's like eight grams of protein. So like maybe between breakfast, lunch, we got 10 grams of protein and then they'll have some meat at dinner. And so maybe they're getting 40 grams of protein over the course of the day. Most adults who are over 140 pounds of weight which is most adults in America. There are some exceptions to it. So I'm just saying, you know, if you're petite, this might need to be scaled a little. But that minimally to stabilize their blood glucose, they need to be getting between 65 and 75 grams of protein in the day. And they do better for mental health. And if they're 200 pounds, which is not unusual in this country, like I still want to round that up a little more. But even 65 to 70 is a pretty substantial change in behavior. And it's a learned skill set that has to be put in in terms of changing the diet. And so I have this experiment, three days of protein every three hours to flatten that blood glucose and see if they feel better. And most people are like, oh, yeah, this is better. Now, there's some people who only notice when things get worse. They're like, well, those were just good days. And I'm like, okay, go back, eat what you were eating before. And then they come back and they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, now I see it, right? It can go either way. But knowing that you have a tool that you can, you don't have to use it every day, but on important days, like that would be helpful. And then having the continuous glucose monitor is helpful because some people can really see, they're like, oh, I eat potatoes, nothing really happens. My husband eats potatoes and he has this huge spike. Everybody's really different. And we have research that supports that statement. So I had one patient, I was like, yeah, Coca-Cola. And she's like, I know, but I like it so much. But once she saw what happened on her blood glucose, she's like, I'm going to hold this to the weekends because I can be dysregulated on the weekends. I can't be dysregulated at work. That's so helpful and makes so much sense because if you monitor how you feel, it's always mentally sugars involved. 20 minutes after I eat my Ben and Jerry's ice cream after a bad day, I get tryptophan across my blood brain barrier that gives me a signal that everything's going to be okay. People are incredibly smart about their bodies. Like who buys those big gulps at 7-Eleven? Those are people without resources. And we get really judgmental about that's causing diabetes and obesity and body shaming and all that. When I see somebody doing that, what I see is somebody trying to dose themselves so that they stay in their prefrontal cortex and they stay away from their survival brain. That is a good strategy when you don't have enough safety in your life. Oh, so what you're saying is your body knows it needs something. And in this case, it goes, it gets those big gulps and something calms that person down. Even though their sugar might be going up, yeah, they're getting calmed down. They're getting calmed down. 
And because they're bringing their blood sugar up and maybe you guys are different, but when I'm really stressed out, like when I was in medical school, I just ate sugar every two hours. I was really consistent with it because I had all this information coming at me. I was super stressed out. I'm dyslexic. I was just like, how am I going to get through all this reading? And I was just like super triggered about being met. And so my solution was just to eat sugar every two hours. And people do that. But it's not a long-term strategy. It's a great short-term strategy. And we all used it during the pandemic for sure. But at some point, we have to go back to building our resilience and that power supply. One of my clients gave me this great metaphor is like when you build a fire, like you need kindling and newspaper to get it going, right? And that's what sugar and carbs are, right? And you can have a nice fire, but you got to be feeding it all the time. But if you throw a big log in there, which is protein and good fat, you can put a little bit of carbs in there and then sustain for three or four hours. What people really want is they want to be able to eat once and then not think about it all day long. They're very frustrated. It's only a three or four hour window. What I see is probably historically we could tolerate longer windows, but the only way we tolerate longer windows is if we're moving our body throughout those three or four hours, which functionally most of us are not going to do. Boy, this is such an interesting way to look at it. Like you said, it's sort of an amazing tool is at our disposal to help us with our anxiety and our worry and our fatigue. And you're saying after maybe the three days of practicing that you've seen people doing the protein every three hours, you've seen people get better. Yeah. And feel that they have something that they can control. Not everybody. Some people are like, ah, oh, this is going to be too much responsibility. That, you know, and there's stories that explain that response. But for the last 15 years, I've been traveling the country doing continuing education with mental health professionals. And what they report to me, like, it's not just me who can do it. It's mental health professionals and it's parents. They're like, oh, if I just track getting protein in throughout the day, for me or my teenager or my seven-year-old, it goes better. And if we ask ourselves when we're really getting worked up about something, when did I last eat? Oh, I'm about to have a panic attack. I haven't had food in six hours. In the book, there's this, what I call lizard brain treats. And lizard brain treats are such a great tool for people to have. A quarter cup of juice. I know everybody's like, oh, juice is really bad for you. I'm like, no, it's just a quick carb. And we're not doing eight ounces. We're doing a quarter cup so that we can get some really quick glucose to your brain. And then we're going to do a handful of nuts or seeds, right? I don't care. Some kind of protein, scoop of peanut butter, a little piece of meat, some jerky. I've done a lot of telemedicine in the last couple of years. And people come on and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, go to the kitchen. They're like, there's no food in the kitchen. I'm like, I bet you have sugar. We're just going to go get a spoonful. And they're like, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, and they go do it. And within five minutes, you can see their lizard brain sit down and the prefrontal cortex sit down and they're like, oh, and I'm like, hi, what's going on? And then they can tell me their story. And I know that little lizard brain treat's not going to last them more than the appointment. And so I'm always like, you have to go get a meal now or you're going to go back there. And part of it is there's external stresses and we have to give our body the nutrients to stay in the prefrontal cortex so that it can pay attention and do the thinking. 
we have a natural response to not eat under stress because 5,000 years ago, under stress, we wanted as much adrenaline in the system because we were either going to go try and kill a buffalo or we were going to go to war. We needed to physically fight with our body. And I'm a martial artist. I'm a black belt. I've studied this. And when you are squared up with somebody and it's about your life, you want as much adrenaline in there as possible because you don't want, this is so slow in that scenario. You just want your senses to take care of everything. If you're presenting to the board something really important, if you're going to court, if you're taking an exam, you want to be in this part of your brain and your survival part of your brain's not going to help you because you're not fighting with your body, you're fighting with your brain. And so you have to fuel your brain. I know we touched on this and we were discussing it before, the mind, the gut, the brain connection. And so many people have the nervous stomach, all that. And this is that, right? This is anxiety. It's not something else wrong with you. It's anxiety. Can you talk a little bit about that? So there's this polyvagal theory, which is really one of the best working mental health theories out there by Porges. Our nervous system has the, what we call the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic system is largely the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve has two portions of it. The oldest runs our digestive system. It really likes being in the background, kind of like taking care of things, sending information like you ate this much protein, you ate this much carbs, it's monitoring all sorts of amazing stuff. And like when we have an infant, we're really setting up that nervous system by having a circadian rhythm so that there's safety. Historically, this is like uh, lizards have this dorsal and if it got threatened, it shut down the nervous system and the nervous system either threw up at something, pooped on something, but stopped digesting because when you're under threat, don't digest. So it shuts down. Then the sympathetic nervous system in terms of evolution developed and it was like, oh, things survive better if they ran or they fought. But we also started using the sympathetic nervous system for play and risk-taking. And if we're in charge of it, like we've all had the experience where if we have chosen to do something that is unknown or risky, we're like, we're in. But if the same thing is forced upon us, very different reaction. That's having that prefrontal cortex and that ventral part of the vagus nerve, which is about being social and connected. And the piece that my research and my experience falls into is that what we're missing is that our diet and sleep determine how much flexibility that sympathetic nervous system has. Because if you're sitting in a room and there is nothing threatening and you're around the people that you love and trust and you can work yourself into a panic attack, that's being internally generated. And our brain makes meaning and purpose about externally generated stuff. Just as an example, I was a third degree black belt at the time. I'm not small. I'm bigger than a lot of men who come into martial arts. So I was in this beginner's class. I was training with a beginner. He didn't even have a gi on. He's like brand new. And my brain's like, he's going to kill you. And I'm like, fascinating. Because <laughs> I've done a lot of therapy. Right? <laughs> fascinating. You know, we're surrounded by 10 other black belts and then a whole bunch of our friends. Why do you think he's going to kill you? And so I start going through my list. Is he stoned or high? 
Because that happened. <laughs> no, he doesn't look stoned or high. Is he a skilled martial artist from another tradition? Because sometimes that happens. Like they come in because I did Aikido and sometimes that's not considered a real martial art. And like the offensive people come in, they want to see if we're worth anything. And he was not coordinated enough to be a martial artist. So I'm working through my list. I was like, when was the last time you ate? Oh, I forgot to eat when I came to the dojo. So it's now 6.30 and I ate at noon. I don't know why this guy, my brain thinks that he's a threat. I mean, my life's been threatened a couple of times in my lifetime. And there was something about him that my brain was hooking on, but it had nothing to do with him and everything to do with me. And I was like, I think I'm going to bow out and go get a protein bar so that I don't kill the beginners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so interesting because you're right. We believe our thoughts. Yeah. And what you're saying is our thoughts are going that way because we haven't fed our body. Because we haven't fed our body. And we continue to, like I was just thinking during stressful times, you're like, oh, I just don't feel like eating, but that might catch up with you, right? And the people that have worked with me over time, like I've had some accountants who were like, okay, this accounting year, you are going to stay on top of your food and you're going to eat protein every three or four hours. And you're going to have meals delivered. Like we problem solve, like, how are you going to get food to you? Because generally if food's in front of you, you eat. Right. Like, but it has to be prepared and yummy. And what they found, and accountants, you know, like it's just a horrible system that they're on. You know, when they finally got to April or really May, what it took was resting for three or four days rather than resting for 30 days and not wanting to do it again. Because the other thing, when we go through high stress events, particularly if they're repetitive, which we all have jobs that are repetitive, right? There's high stress. If we enter that with extra threat because we're not feeding ourselves, then we're going to avoid them. Eventually, the brains will be like, oh, that's a bad deal. Let's not do that. This is a wealth of information <laughs> and it makes so much sense. We just so appreciate you coming on to share all of this with us. And we hope everyone will buy your book. Fuel your brain, not your anxiety and stop the cycle of worry, fatigue and sugar cravings with the simple protein rich foods. And just to add that this is a workbook and it does walk you through the day, right? And yeah. how to make sure that you can support yourself. But there's so much more. And it would be great to have you back on if you would like to, so we can continue this conversation. Oh, it'd be so much fun. This conversation has just really, as Doro said, given us so much information to sort of begin a way to empower ourselves, to take back this thought that, oh my gosh, my thoughts, my anxiety can take over me, but rather, hey, every three hours, I'm going to just reach for something, a protein and see how I do. This has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much. It's really important. And I know speaks directly to me, Dora. <laughs> yeah, oh, I know. I mean, and me too, but I was thinking of you a lot. There's lots of resources on my website, a lot of free resources that you can watch at fuelyourbrain.org. But unfortunately, I legally cannot work with people unless they're within the state of Washington. Dr. Allett, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us on HealthKick. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.